Hello, and welcome to the Eclectic Vanguard. With me, Michael Brown. This is, of course, Radiolab 97.1 FM. Hello, everybody. I hope you are all having a Merry Christmas Eve and are looking forward to a Merry Christmas Day. Uh, it perhaps might not be an exciting Christmas day or one that you're particularly looking forward to. Obviously, in some sense, we are living in exciting times right now with this coronavirus going on. But in another much more real sense for many people, we are living in tremendously boring times where it feels like not much is happening. However, if you are wanting to avoid boredom, then I am sure you will want to listen to the show we have today. It's actually just going to be the one interview and part of that is because it is quite difficult to get a hold of people at Christmas. And for that reason, by the way, as I will get into halfway through the show to break things up, I'm going to be doing something slightly different next week. That's one reason. And the other reason is simply because this person we're going to be talking to, who is called Strategy Stuff, you're going to be hearing from him in just a few minutes. His name is Colin. Uh, he, he has a YouTube channel where he talks about strategy stuff. And it's a very interesting channel. And, and he'll shout it out, but I'll shout it out too. It deals with all sorts of interesting topics. He's got a video on the geopolitics of the Mughal Empire. Uh, he's got all the sorts of things about different naval strategies of countries like the United States. He deals with loads of topics. And today he's going to be talking to us about Eurasianism. And if you don't know what that is, that's fine. That, that's why I uh, think you're going to find this interview so interesting. But in short, if you're interested in what is happening internationally, especially regarding Russia right now, then you are going to want to listen to this interview. And yes, the interview ran for long enough because there was so much to discuss. Right now, I was happy to just have this interview, which I, I found very interesting. Because you look at what Russia is doing right now on the international sphere, you look at their involvement in Syria, you look at their involvement in uh, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkey, obviously Crimea, obviously the Donbass in Ukraine, obviously Transnistria in Moldova, uh, and of course lots of involvement in other former Soviet spaces, which is one big thing we will be talking about with uh, Colin when we get around to talking to him. Uh, obviously they have very good relations with North Korea, and of course they are actively funding far-right movements in uh, many parts of the West, the UK, Europe, uh, and America. The reality is that anywhere where there is conflict, anywhere where international actors aren't going to see 100% eye to eye, one of those international actors is going to want to say, well, I want to make sure that I'm in the stronger position, so if things ever go badly, uh, I, I can be in the best position possible. And that's the situation Russia really wants to be in. And you're going to come to understand a bit more about some of the theories that are potentially underpinning Russian action as we have this discussion with Colin. And like I say, it's going to be a long interview. I'm going to uh, play it now, and then we, we'll break it up a bit just because it is quite long. But until then, I hope you enjoy the conversation. So we're joined by Colin, the uh, creator of the YouTube channel Strategy Stuff. Uh, hi, Colin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. So uh, do you want to just explain what exactly you do on Strategy Stuff? Because I think it's a very interesting channel. So Strategy Stuff is a YouTube channel uh, based around geopolitics, uh, military analysis, and sort of um, grand strategy. So basically anything from operational level up. I normally do a lot of uh, uh, analysis of military uh, campaigns, but also um, the sort of grand strategic view of it from yeah. beyond just the campaign into the sort of political, military, economic aspect of things. Yeah, and, and obviously it's, it's really interesting because you cover all sorts of uh, areas. You, you know, I, I know you've done videos on uh, the Peloponnesian War, 
uh, in toward Japan. And obviously what we're going to be talking about today, which is Eurasian Eurasianism, I think, which is basically a grand strategy. Would you say it's a grand strategy of, of Russia, basically, in the wider Eurasian area? It's a, it's a strategic theory of Russia, okay. not a grand strategy of Russia. A grand strategy would be a, a sort of a practical implementation. Oh, okay. See, well, whereas this is purely theory. Okay. Well, so speaking of the theory, I think uh, I, I'm right in understanding that this is a theory has developed a bit. So, do you want to just walk us through the development of, of this idea of Eurasianism? Eurasianism has gone through several iterations. I think we can say that it's been done in response in an attempt to sort of justify Russia's uh, place in the world after sort of severe. Uh, political shocks. So, for example, like the collapse of the Russian Empire in 1917, and then the mm. collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So, there are three phases of Eurasianism. The first one is classical Eurasianism, which was developed by Russian exiles in the 1920s. The second one is Soviet-type Eurasianism, which was developed by an uh, anthropologist called Lev Gumilyov in the 1950s. Okay. And then there's uh, the modern type of Eurasianism, which most people are, which people are most familiar with, which is Neo-Eurasianism, which is uh, uh, done by uh, philosophers and strategists such as Alexander Dugin, in, mm. uh, starting in the 2000s. Okay, so yeah, I think obviously Neo-Eurasianism is, is perhaps the more interesting one, because that's the one obviously being, being pushed now. So what, what are, I guess, the basic tenets of, of Neo-Eurasianism, and perhaps what distinguishes it from older forms of uh, the theory? Uh, basically, the first thing to note is that there isn't a definitive Eurasianism. There's no, there's no sort of state, state communism, for example. There's no state mm. Eurasianism. And so there are loads of variations, and I sort of try and com uh, synthesize the general commonalities of the theory. So basically, the central idea of Eurasianism is the idea that different geographies produce different peoples. So on a continent mm. level, this means that uh, continent-level geographic areas produce different civilizations. And these different civilizations each have their own values. So Neo-Eurasianism in particular focuses on two civilizations. The first one is called the Eurasian civilization, which is a sort of uh, defined as an area from Eastern Europe through Central Asia to the Russian Far East. And this gives rise to a Eurasian civilization, which is sort of characterized by a variety of traditional structures and values that, that nevertheless manage to work together. So this is the first civilization yeah. that Eurasianism focuses on, obviously. The second one is what we call, uh, Neo-Eurasianists call, an Atlanticist civilization. So this is characterized by um, a sort of oceanic highways, so linking the Western, linking what we would call the English-speaking world together. This results in a sort of a civilization that is very dominated by commerce. And this in turn gives rise to sort of commercial and liberal values of individualization materialism yeah. and standardization. So given the values of this Atlanticist civilization, it's inevitable for Neo-Eurasianists anyway, that it will try and sort of remake and standardize other civilizations to fit with its values. And mm. so by extension, Neo-Eurasianists see that the Atlanticist civilization is sort of fated to dominate other civilizations. If I, if I can clarify, the Atlanticist civilization is obviously English-speaking countries like the U.S., the U.K., Australia, yeah. uh, and so on. If the other civilizations accept this sort of Atlanticist domination, they become disassociated with their original geography. Because as I said, the central idea of Eurasianism is that different geographies have sort of have different values attached to them. So when they and when the native civilization to that geography 
is disassociated, they inevitably suffer uh, ideological, ideological and political chaos. And mm. so that perpetuates uh, Atlanticist civilizational dominance. So in the end, all this is all what all this is bringing up to is that there is a need for Eurasian civilization to unite and resist the Atlanticist civilization. In the Eurasian view, is it true to say that there's an idea that almost uh, the Eurasian and Atlanticist civilizations are kind of, I guess, arch rivals in the world? Because obviously you could kind of see that with, with the Cold War, for example. Uh, do, do they have this sense that it's sort of because obviously they must believe there's in not other there's not a dichotomy between um, Eurasianism and Atlanticism, not not that strongly. Uh, mm. Even though, like, there's there's this idea that Dugan puts out that the Eurasian civilization is inevitably land-based, and the um, so what he calls a teleocracy, land-based civilization, while the Atlantis is a thalassocracy, a uh, sort of ocean-based civilization. But there isn't actually this sort of um, dichotomy there that oh, Eurasianism has to be like the 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 arch rival of Atlanticism. It's just that Atlanticism, in the neo Eurasian view, is is just is inevitably going to come into conflict with all these other civilizations simply because of its need to sort of standardize and homogenize everything. So yeah, so really what the um, Eurasianism is criticizing is this idea that I, I guess they would say unique to uh, Atlanticism, which is universal values. So obviously, and, and I suppose you can see that with things like uh, colonialism under the UK in particular was about spreading standards of democracy and things like that. I think, I think one thing we have to note is it's not just um, a sort of a top down from the state level. It's also from um, bottom up from sort of things like corporations and um, maybe sort of uh, mass media and all that. Mm. So it's a, it's a multifaceted thing. It's not just uh, from from sort of imposed by the United States government or something. Uh, obviously, in that case, one has to wonder, does the fact that the Atlantic media and Atlantic institutions and Atlantis uh, civilization is able to dominate economically. Do these things come from the fact that perhaps there is a certain objective value to many of the uh, the structures of the Atlantic civilization? Because how, how else would um, the Atlantic civilization be able to be so dominant in terms of the media and things like that? Right. Um, New Eurasianists never sort of deny that um that the Atlanticist, uh, sort of the commercial aspect of the Atlanticist civilization allows it to amass a lot of wealth and a lot of influence. Another advantage the Atlanticist civilization has is that because it's, um, it's sort of a, its element is the ocean, sort of sea control, mm. and most of the world, uh, most of the civilizations and subcontinents of the world basically border the ocean. So uh, there's always an advantage for the Atlanticist projection of power. So there's that. That's one thing that that makes uh, Eurasia, Eurasia, the Eurasian civilization, uh, unique is that it isn't bordered a lot by sea or accessible sea. Anyway, the Arctic Sea doesn't doesn't really mm. count as a, an avenue for a naval projection. In some sense, it's almost as if 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 you have this view that geography defines so much, which is the Eurasianist view, then the Atlantic civilization, I guess, had a, a really good start in the world simply because. They, you know, are flanked by the Mediterranean, by the the Baltic, by the you know the North Sea, and of course the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and then in the case of America, the Pacific Ocean. So they were basically just a civilization that was guaranteed to be inclined to uh, project its power. I do have one question actually in that regard. You, you mentioned before how the Eurasianist view is that 
these values of uh, capitalism, free trade, individualism, liberalism are kind of the reason why the Atlantic civilization has wanted to project these values universally. I'm wondering if you think the these values themselves came from the geographic ability to project values globally, that there was a sense of because the the uh, Atlantic civilization can project its values, it began to develop values that it felt had more universal appeal, or if the values... No, that's, just... not, that's not how the Eurasianists think of it. It's, it's that because each geography, each specific geography creates a sort of a set of accompanying values mm. it helps generate because because in the eurasian view um humans adapt to the local geography essentially so when you adapt to the sea because of the the sea essentially for eurasian uh they take a view that it is a very homogenizing entity so because obviously um if travel by sea commerce by sea exchange by sea is faster mm. than by land so it's much easier to develop a sort of homogenizing culture and that's sort of for eurasian and eurasianists creates a sort of imperative homogenizing imperative for for the atlanticist civilization mm. um one word which i, I heard you mention in, in your video was I ideocracy which is uh well could you could you just explain what exactly that means well i would i would also like to know what it means to be honest oh, okay. but, um in 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 a sense we can we can think about how eurasian is what ideo ideocracy is from sort of the 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 sort of examples that Eurasianists look at to sort of say, oh, this is an ideocracy. So classical Eurasianists, for example, they look at, um, they back then they looked at fascist Italy under Mussolini yeah. in the 1920s. Uh, Neo-Eurasianists tend to look at sort of Stalinism, uh, not, not, not post-Stalinism. But basically, the, so, so from these two examples, we can see that sort of uh, ideocracy essentially is a sort of uh, an asymmetric form of political organization in a sense um mm. which is uh you're trying to overcome material deficiencies through ideological mobilization so this idea this this nowadays nowadays and uh sort of associated with fascism this idea that will can overcome a lot of um basic deficiencies in in sort of material or material uh wealth or natural resources or production so with enough will the, the the state and the people can be motivated to sort of find ways around their material deficiencies. Reminder, you're listening to The Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radiolab 97.1 FM. Now back to the show. One example, actually, of that, which I find quite interesting, this is actually hearkening to, to your video on Japan in a way, but I'm, I'm just noticing a, a comparison here, which is something you mentioned in, in your video on Japan, which I'm just going to briefly mention it, is there's an idea called the traditionalist grand strategy, which basically argues that uh, Japan in this scenario can engage in small conflicts. And the idea is that even though Japan would lose a total war by engaging in small conflicts, they won't run into issues with other countries wanting to engage in a total war. And I feel like that's kind of the case with the asymmetric situation in Russia. The, the one issue is that the average Westerner isn't really going to want to engage in a total war. And that's how perhaps Russia is able to uh, encroach on places like Crimea and obviously the Donbass and Georgia, that basically, even though Russia, and I, this kind of strikes me as uh, very asymmetric, even though Russia would obviously lose against the combined industrial and population might of America plus Western Europe, because these countries are so developed, the average person in them isn't really going to want to go risk their lives fighting half the world away. So is that incorporated into 
the Eurasian understanding of asymmetric warfare at all? Well, asymmetric warfare is definitely part of the Eurasian grand strategy because it's a, it's a way of trying to overcome the material deficiency of the Atlanticist civilization, as I said. Asymmetric warfare is um, we're attacking in a way that prevents you from actually uh, putting your mm. whole power against us. So I don't know if anybody... Um, I don't know. The, I don't know if you uh, know the scene in uh, Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister. Uh, no, I haven't uh, seen that. The, the salami slicing scene. That's no. basically asymmetric warfare. Um, the British Prime Minister was sort of discussing with the, uh, the with an advisor about um, what to do in a crisis in Berlin, and basically the the advisor sort of lists out a sort of a lot of steps that in it in taken by themselves. So, for example, like there's a riot in Berlin, and the East Germans are running into sort sort of. Um, put down the riot. This sort of step in itself does not actually uh, justify you sort of launching nukes at Russia, obviously. But step by step, you sort of raise that, you sort of build on those sort of incremental steps, and then you achieve a situation where uh, you've basically gotten what you wanted, uh, quite a big change in the political scene without without effective Western um, intervention. And that's what's happened in Crimea uh, through sort of... Um, mm. Through sort of uh, man manufactured doubt, uh, a lot of denial, a lot of doubt, a lot of justifications. Uh, these sort of things are all um, working in Crimea to sort of prevent an effective Western uh, intervention, a sort of an effective Western public outcry against Russia for mm. in that in that particular case. So it's kind of like I mean the analogy I'm thinking of is the idea that if you put a a frog in a pot of water and then slowly bring it to a boil. The, the frog won't do anything because if you slowly bring it to a boil, it doesn't realize. And that's yeah, kind of yeah, exactly. in, in a way that, what that, yeah. Russia's doing. Um, and I, I think there are there's some examples I, I can think of. But what, one of them, because I remember you mentioned controlling resources. And of course, there was uh, a, a big crisis uh, a few quite a few years ago now. But basically that Russia turned off all of their, their oil and, and basically turned off the oil pipelines that were supplying Western Europe. So to what extent does, because you mentioned the idea that the Eurasian civilization has deficiencies when it comes to resources, but I, I think you've also said that Eurasianists are very much in, into the idea of trying to take stock of what resources they do have that can be used to their advantage in uh, achieving political aims. Is that true? Yes, yes. And de definitely natural resources has been has been seen as by people like Dugan as a sort of a potential way of striking at the West without generating the sort of a pro uh, the, the sort of um, equal retaliation that that would otherwise uh, result. Mm. But well, now I, I think we need to get into the the big thing, which I, a lot of people are probably aware of when it comes to Russian interference in the West and asymmetric warfare, which is, of course, in well, in America, there was all this talk about them influencing the, the 2016 election based on the idea that Donald Trump might be better for them politically compared to Hillary Clinton. And of course, in, in the UK, uh, it's I don't know to what extent it's been proven, but it's significantly suspected that Russia was involved in influencing the uh, Brexit and that all over Europe, there's this idea that Russia is influencing far right movements. So why does Russia want to... Uh, you know, taking all of this for granted, why does Russia have an investment in supporting these kind of far-right uh, nationalist movements in in much of Western, well, the Western world? Right. So I'll 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 say this at first: Russian policy is not the same thing as Neo Eurasian policy. So it's not necessarily the fact that oh, because of what Neo Neo Eurasianists say, that Russia uh, does it. 
Okay. Um, it's perfectly it's perfectly sort of logical for Russia to, for example, sow discord between within the United States, sort of try and break up the U.S. Uh, EU uh, alliance and and so on. But in any case, we could also flip this another in another way and say that actually Dugan is saying all this stuff because he knows this is sort of what what Russian policy generally is, and so he mm. wants to sort of be confirmed in hindsight, in a sense. Because mm. he's writing things that the Russia was going to do anyway. What he's saying about far uh, w- with regards to sort of Russian links uh, strategy with regards to uh, connecting with the far right. Actually, Dugan does say that um, the far right is the easiest one to convert to sort of uh, uh, the new neo Eurasian ideal, which is sort of a traditionalist ideal, where where people should sort of reject the sort of uh, di- the the impact of capitalism on their uh, local communities, on their identity, and so on. So traditional Orthodox values and that sort of stuff. Russia, uh, Dugan says that this is uh, that the far right is the easiest one to catch because obviously. Um, easiest one to link up with because obviously uh, the sort of the far right identitarian politics is pretty close to the sort of neo-Eurasianist tried uh, neo-Eurasianist uh, traditionalist uh, ideal. Uh, the mm. second the second easiest one is the, the far left, the communists and the liberalism is the hardest one. And yeah. also there's another thing the why why Europe in particular it's because um, neo-Eurasianists also see Europe as uh, well, the old world, I suppose, not necessarily just Europe, but Europe in this case, in in this current age, as being particularly susceptible to this, because Europe has an established history, it has an established uh, sort of organic. I I know again, this has a lot of fascist connotations, but uh, uh, there's a the European peoples are yeah. organically raised up from the sort of the the territory they're in, so Hungarians and the Hungarian plain and that sort of thing. Dugan actually says that actually uh, America is very difficult to break into because America, the American identity for Dugan is essentially an, um, an ideal. Yes. Like this, this again goes back to the whole idea that Americans don't, don't like, are just a bunch of a mix of nationalities in his support of Trump. He said that basically, uh, the, the sort of surge of support of Trump is also, uh, a manifestation of a sort of a true America as well. Mm. Like, you know, the, what they say, what Republicans like to say, the heartland versus the, the city yeah. and so on. The the far right is generally seen as a very um, easier target for for an alliance with uh, new Eurasianism for for these reasons. This is this is very speculative, but it is the goal then to have parts of of Europe, particularly. I mean, obviously, you, you mentioned Hungary. Hungary stands out in Europe as being the most directly currently fascist government, of course, under Orban. Uh, it is. There a sense that actually Russia can unite with with these these countries, or is that not a desire at all, or is it more about just creating sufficient discord in in uh, Europe as to delegitimize this uh, you know Atlantic civilizational idea, particularly expressed through the EU? Well, actually, in the new new Eurasianist sense, European integration is actually quite desirable because it sort of fits in with their idea that each civilization naturally mm. gravitates to a single political system. It's just that the current mode of integration under the EU is very bad because that's a very that's an Atlanticist sort of institution linked with NATO and linked with the U.S. Mm. So, um, if you if you Obviously, in again practical Russian politics, it makes uh, practical Rash- Russian strategy. It makes sense to sort of split split Eastern Europe uh, away from sort of Western Europe. 
But in neo Eurasianism, this sort of strategy isn't is at best a means to an end. Well, there are there are some neo Eurasianists who will extend Eurasia all the way to Hungary, but um, in any case, the Hungary the Hungarians are not trying to uh, link up with Russia anyway. So, um, in, in a in a in a sort of union sense, so. I think this is mostly uh, sort of divide and conquer tactics in in an attempt to sort of create a Europe more to Russia's liking. Mm, yeah, that's that is interesting. Uh, and I've got another point, but I, I think it's worth just establishing to what extent has because obviously I, I'm talking about Eurasian, you know, the Eurasian civilization projecting itself against the uh, Atlantic civilization. But to what extent has the Eurasian civilization that the neo-Eurasianists describe actually been politically integrated in, in, in practical terms so let me let me just say in in the theoretical new new eurasianist idea as i said earlier um each geography sort of naturally produces a civilization and the peoples within that civilization naturally gravitate towards each other mm. so in the new eurasianist idea it's sort of it, the the sort of uh, the gravitation of the what we can what we what we will basically call the post-soviet space back into russia they think it's um it's a natural, inevitable, in, inevitable occurrence, and the mm. fact that it hasn't happened yet is a result of sort of Western intervention. So that's the yeah. that's the sort of backdrop from the Eurasian uh, uh, point of view. So it's not and, something which has to be sought up after directly, so much as it's something which is only ever not achieved insofar as it's directly frustrated. Well, it has to be sought after in the sense that you have to again uh, overcome the frustrations because okay, of the yeah. West, because which are which are inevitably blamed on the Western powers, of course. Um, mm. And in terms of practical integration, you have you've had sort of Russian-led attempts to sort of uh, integrate the Eurasian space ever since like the breakup of the Soviet Union. The most institutionalized manifestation of this is the uh, Eurasian Economic uh, Union, yes. the EAU. Interestingly enough, that was not a Russian idea at the beginning. That was a Kazakh idea, mm. um, and the Kazakhs were doing it in a sort of in in a way to um, to accentuate their identity and leadership in Central Asia, especially against Uzbekistan. In any case, uh, Russia sort of thought this idea was a great uh, great idea, and then they began um, integration starting at least in uh, two thousand and nine, and yeah. and fast forward to now. January uh, 2015, they uh, basically they've got um, Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Armenia, and Kyrgyzstan in in the uh, in the union, and they've sort of made some headway into a common into creating sort of common macroeconomic policies, coordination between governments on certain policy issues, and mm -hmm. in even a sort of a, 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 a supreme court. And they're talking about a single currency. And Putin has sort of talked about a greater Eurasian project linking the Eurasian uh, Economic Union with other sort of supernatural and su supranational bodies. Like <laughs> yeah, supernatural the would be uh, yeah. helpful. Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the EU and ASEAN. So in a sense, they've made some strides towards uh, towards sort of working together. But again, the problem is uh, Russia continues to be very dominant in the EAU. It's like ninety percent of its yeah. uh, of the of the of the EAU's uh, GDP, and also um, there are not enough countries in it. Essentially, yes, yeah, that sounds. I just want to talk a bit about what it is we're going to be doing on next week's show on Radio Lab ninety seven point one FM, the Eclectic Vanguard, with me, Michael Brown, uh, because it's going to be a New Year's show, and I already mentioned how. 
it's been a bit difficult to get interviews lined up for the Christmas period, and I have actually got a huge number of interviews lined up for the new year. So ultimately, uh, there's not going to be an issue in the new year, but right now it's quite difficult to get a hold of interviews. And also, I wanted to do something special for New Year's, and I figured what I would do is review the top 10 films of the previous decade. Just because it seemed like something that I would find quite interesting. I'm a bit of a film buff. Uh, I talk about politics, but I'm also interested in film. And I figured it would be a nice thing to do as a little break uh, to, you know, maybe if, if you're a bit bored on New Year's because maybe lockdown's still in the fact then, you can listen to me talking about these films and perhaps decide some films you would like to watch. So I thought that might be a nice idea while we're all locked down. One of the things you can do is watch films, especially seeing as these wouldn't be films that would be in the cinema anyway. Hopefully you will come by and listen on Radio Lab 97.1 FM. Uh, now I will leave you back with the interview because, like I say, it is quite a long interview, but quite an interesting interview, and I don't want to keep you any longer than I need to. So I hope you enjoy the rest of my discussion. One other thing, actually, I find interesting. You've mentioned the Soviet Union, and um, you've also mentioned the idea of a fascist Italy as a, a comparison. And something which seems like an interesting and I guess quite persuasive conclusion from a lot of this is that the USSR wasn't really about communism and it wasn't about expressing an ideological objection to the West so much as from a, a neo-Eurasianist view, it would be about expressing a civilizational uh, rebellion against Western dominance. And that this idea, in, in a sense, with uh, the USSR, that was, I guess, almost peak Eurasianism and it effectively controlled Mongolia. I mean, every single area you mentioned in terms of where Eurasianism seeks to cover from Eastern Europe through to the Russian Far East was covered by the USSR. So do you personally agree with this idea that the USSR really, it wasn't about, you know, it, it was, it may have been Marxist, it may have been communist, it may have been socialist, but what it was really about was this civilizational identity coming together. Well, can I first, can I first say that, um, your idea of Eurasianism, uh, of communism being a sort of a reaction against the West. That's a, a lot of Eurasianists would challenge that. Dugan only okay. says that Stalinism is the only time when sort of the Soviet Union was was really uh, Eurasianist. He says that after Khrushchev got in, like he he got fooled by these ideas of uh, sort of coexisting with the West, and then like there there and started the uh, the path to the West uh, to, to yeah. break. 1991. Um, obviously, classical Eurasianists absolutely hate the Soviet Union. They thought because obviously Marxist Marxism is is a German ideology came from yeah. Germany, at least. and uh, and so they thought this was a betrayal of the sort of the Orthodox and Turkic Muslim roots, which which constituted the Russian Empire. Mm. So there's that. So so you were saying that classic uh, that Eurasianism is, is as the, that the Soviet Union was a sort of expression of Eurasianism. Yeah, uh, well, it, it seems like that. I mean, the Soviets certainly didn't think they were yeah. expressions of Eurasianism. And you have to remember the Soviet Eurasianist Lev Gumilyov. He was uh, he was the son of the famous poet Anna Akhmatova, who was a Soviet, you could say, a Soviet dissident. Yeah. So his okay. his views on the Soviet Union were 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 rather ambivalent uh, on the communist section. Anyway, he recognized he 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 recognized the need for sort of order in the Eurasian space. But he didn't think that the Soviets were necessarily the best option for it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, so obviously you've spoken about uh, Eurasian in integration, but the, the other idea is, of course, what I, I think it was, I think I remember you using the term a, a grand like anti-Western alliance was the idea. But basically this this view that 
what and obviously this falls into the asymmetric idea as well that eurasianism its best bet is to make uh functionally alliances with with other uh, civilizations and obviously i mean in a contemporary context iran and syria uh you know some parts of uh latin america that are against american imperialism uh, come to mind how how effective has that been and to what extent is it something that you think russia is actively pursuing well, again, as I, I would I would give the caveat yes. that uh, Russian Russian foreign policy is not necessarily dictated by um, uh, by Eurasianism. Uh, as to its effectiveness, um, clearly uh, Russia, like for example, in the Middle East, Russia with uh, Russia's support of Bashar al-Assad has brought it back into the Middle East since, mm. which has not occurred since uh, in since the nineteen seventies. I can't. I can't quite remember the dates. Probably when yeah. Sadat Sadat expelled all the Soviet advisors. But um, Russia's gone back into the Middle East in a big way. Uh, it's also gained a lot of influence um, in in Eastern Europe and with Turkey. Sort of traditional Turkey, especially since it's considered a tr- traditional uh, NATO ally. It is a tra- it is part of NATO, in fact. But in terms of Latin America, I wouldn't. I mean, ultimately, you have to remember that the sheer disparity between what resources Russia has and what um, the Western alliance, we can say, has is, is, is such that there's only so much Russia can do. Uh, I would say China is probably doing a better job at resting influence in Latin America than Russia is, simply because of the sheer size of its, of its economy. Mm. To what extent would you say that Russia and China, and I, I guess if we could take Russia as maybe being some other Eurasian civilizations or whatever, or sorry, some other constituents of the Eurasian civilization, to what extent would you say they are presently aligned in their goals? There, there, there was, of course, a time when when Russia and China or the USSR and Russia and China were very lined up. To, to what extent are they working together now? Well, they clearly want the same, uh, want one of the same uh, things, which is multipolarity. Sort mm. of a, not, not an end to US dominance, but a retreat of US influence. A sort of carving out of spheres of influence in in their sort of own backyards uh, yeah. and the U.S. to respect that. They obviously want that. But in terms of how they're aligned, I mean, you have to remember, again, that Russia realizes, speaking just not just from the sort of neo-Eurasianist view, although they do share that, Dugan, Dugan has, uh, up until very recently, Dugan has preferred Japan over China. Uh, there's always been a fear that China will sort of, letting China too far into Russia sort of political or um or other alliances or economic alliances would result in China completely displacing Russia especially in the far east mm. uh so there's always that sort of wary view i'm sure putin doesn't necessarily if he could choose he wouldn't want to be so aligned to china as well also we have to talk about the chinese silk the the silk road idea of china which basically in, from the russian point of view intrudes into russian territory <laughs> Mm. Especially, especially in Central Asia, but also in more traditional, also in more traditional places of Russian influence, like perhaps uh, Eastern Europe, uh, also Latin America. So yeah. they they do share a common interest in multipolarity, and that's a big interest, and that's and that's enough to get them working together quite uh, quite a bit. But I don't think you can say that it's a sort of a, a, a an alliance that each side is is really enamored with <laughs> yeah okay yeah. um 
something else, else you mentioned is this idea that Russia has this civilizational identity in being, or oh, sorry, the Eurasia. I keep mixing my terms, but um, well, in well, being, uh, well, I think a lot of people would say that Eurasianism is essentially yeah, Russian, yeah, essentially about Russia, yeah. But uh, you, you mentioned this idea of it being Christian Orthodox and and Muslim, and I, I think that idea of Russia as these two. I guess religious denominations, obviously, is not just a whole religion, but um, being united is is interesting, and it, I suppose, it's obviously in contrast to a lot of um, far right movements in Western Europe, which are very much defined in opposition to Islam. It seems like uh, the Eurasianist view, to the extent that I mean, I imagine Eurasians probably hasn't spent too much time talking about this, but would be one of really trying to synthesize you know maybe not in a theological sense but certainly a cultural sense orthodoxy and islam would you say that's is that something they've kind of spilled much ink over i wouldn't say synthesize but get them to work together yeah we have to remember that um this is actually uh, this aspect of uh eurasianism is actually shared a lot by um by sort of official uh russian government but not so much with uh but not so much with the Russian people. You have yeah. to remember that Russia is not a Sla- is not purely Slavic. There are huge bands of there are huge sections of people who are uh, sort of Tatar Muslim, Yakut, Kalmyk, all these uh, different races, uh, different groups that are not um, Slavic. So officially, Russia is actually uh, even Putin. I think said once that Russia was a polyethnic nation. So there's mm. always this problem with uh, Russian nationalism is that you always have to define what Russia is. Do you mean like Slavic Russians or do you mean sort of every Russian? <laughs> do you mean Russia as in sort of a sort of uh, everybody living within the borders of Russia? Yeah. And then you, and then that and then you get into the sort of sense that, OK, so if uh, if so, example, we count Buryats, Buryats as Russian, then why is in Mongolia then part of Russia? Because they're basically because they're Mongolians. Yes. Right. So. um there's always this sort of tension in it. Um, and yes, that's definitely one thing that pits Eurasianism against the Russian far right as well, which is which would have a conception of a Slavic Russia. And he said, like, OK, why are we allying with Central Asia? All they do is they like they, they have these sort of very familiar arguments like, oh, OK, we're only giving money to Central Asia and they, they send us their Im- they they, yeah. they sort of immigrate to our places. So actually, Eurasianism is is not wholly endorsed by every part of the far right. Yeah. Although these days Dugan has actually um uh has gravitated towards a more th- more orthodox conception of Russia. I think he recently had a had a made a joined a party Tsargrad which which is very or which sort of has a conception of Russia as orthodox and Russian. Yeah. Um but Putin has also moved in that direction. He's sort of talking about Russian culture being the core of Russia. Which again, yeah. again, there's that ambiguity there, but I think he, I think, I think most people would say that he's sort of playing to the orthodox crowd in that sense. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, Turkey a while ago, and then the idea of uh, Russia and Turkey being allies. Of course, one interesting thing that strikes me is that Eurasianism, uh, or this idea of a Eurasian civilization, seems to include the probably not the majority of Turkish people but at least the majority of of land area occupied by turkish people because obviously you've got uh, a lot of central central asia is uh well that's that's the main thing but a a huge amount of central asia is occupied by people that are turkic in origin so is there a sense does this idea of having a, a an alliance between 
Russia and Turkey actually extend from, in the Eurasianist view, the fact that so much of Turkic civilization has its origins in the Eurasian steppe, just as Russia does. Yes, so there, um, the, the neo-Eurasianist idea of allying with Turkey is um, not so much to create a sort of uh, uh, a sort of a synthesis between Slavic groups and Turkic groups, because actually, in that sense, Turkey is a pan-Turkism is actually a mortal enemy to uh, Eurasianism, because they obviously they claim the the same region in the form of Central Asia. Uh, the Russian alliance with Turkey in the neo-Eurasian sense is more because the Middle East is a junction for for um, what we would call Eurasia and Africa, these two massive continents. And it's in that sense, it's a uh, it's a central position and it make and it gives uh, the sort of the Eurasian civilization uh, a, a good um, position from which to begin rolling back Atlanticist uh, influence in places of at India, China, uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. I, I guess you kind of, I mean, my next question is actually going to be to what extent has uh, has the idea of forming a, a, a Russian-Turkic alliance been successful? But it sounds like to, to the extent that it really needs to have been successful, w- would you say it, it's been successful in terms of you know russia's i guess limited goals which they've you know have which of uh working towards dislodging western influence uh, over quite as much of the globe do you mean turkic or turkish oh uh <laughs> turkish well well i can i can answer both to be honest um in terms of forging alliances with the turkic group so i mean central asia the stands in central asia Kazakhstan, yeah. Stan, and so on it's 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 been most successful with kazakhstan uh and it's been and it's had varying success elsewhere because the problem with uh central asian integration with russia is that you obviously know who is going to call the shots there and most yeah. central asian states would prefer to uh have wiggle room if not outright sovereignty as in as in turkmenistan who who basically pursues a, a very independent policy uh, and doesn't associate with uh russia on the international arena uh, the, on the other hand, countries like Kyrgyzstan, they've 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 also wanted sort of uh, inclusion into both the Russian and the Chinese economic systems because Kyrgyzstan, for example, is a is a is a sort of a, a clearinghouse yeah. or between between the two uh, major economic blocks. As for Russian, uh, as for the Rus- sort of Russian rapprochement towards Turkey, it's been very helpful in making Turkey sort of rel- relatively uncooperative with. Uh, with the Western alliance, you will mm. recall that Donald Trump was, yes. I think he was about to sanction Turkey over over the sort of the purchase of, of non-NATO equipment yeah. uh, in, instead of Russia. Uh, well, they, Turkey purchased, purchased Russian equipment instead of non-NATO equipment. Yeah. Mm. Something I, I was interested in is this idea that uh, one limitation to Eurasianism is this idea that because it Essentially, my, my understanding is it thinks that the this idea that Western values are universal is essentially a, a smokescreen for the fact that really they're not universal. And I think one idea which I found interesting is that this idea of Western values being universal is actually a means for Western influence to basically be projected by forcing other civilizations to adopt Western values 
which basically always puts other civilizations on the back foot. So Africa is on the back foot because it always has to be kind of keeping up with the Western standard that's being set by us rather than going their own way, basically turning the whole world into imitators of the Western world. Do you, well, I, I guess maybe do, do you agree that there isn't an extent to which this idea of universal Western values is actually a way for Western civilization to project itself and weaken uh, global rivals? Well, from a philosophical point of view, well, like speaking a bit on a tangent, basically values are are values are just assertions of 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 mm. right of good or bad. So so there's no there's no sort of real sort of objective way in which you can say Western values ought to apply to everybody. So there's that. Um, but in but if you say that Western values have, uh, I guess you have to say that because. The attraction of Eurasianism, in some sense, is that they 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 can feel right in a sense. I mean, obviously, some countries with their own having grown up with their own traditions, and you're telling them to adopt something completely different. That's that's always going to be produce a problem. Mm. And at the same and at the same time, uh, but at the same time, it also it actually I would I would argue that Western universal values also sort of hampers. The sort of uh, the the Western viewpoint of itself as well, because mm. the when you believe that it's a universal value, you tend to believe that other people will naturally accept it. And so, uh, for example, during the Ukraine crisis, what what uh, to the EU seemed like trying to stabilize Eastern Europe through what through sort of EU values was seen by Russia as instead a, a sort of an attempt at sort of reducing its sphere of influence. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you can say that it's also harmed the EU in that sense. Yes, uh, that that makes sense. Reminder, you're listening to The Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radiolab 97.1 FM. Now back to the show. Could it work the other way? Because it seems like perhaps Eurasian Eurasianists might be unable to understand why it is that uh, there are many societies where it does seem like the Western values have universal appeal. And I guess, I mean, obviously the problem is you can always make an argument that it's to do with the, the legacy of imperialism. For example, I, I'm thinking about Hong Kong. In, in Hong Kong right now, right now there is, well, actually, I don't know to what extent it's still going on right now because um, COVID and things like that have, have pushed things out of the news. But there were obviously huge protests in opposition. And obviously the, I guess, Eurasianist understanding of that, even though Hong Kong's outside of the area they'd be focusing on, would probably be, well, this is, Western values being pushed upon uh, the, these people in, in a way that's ultimately bad, and they would perhaps be unable to understand the idea that maybe these these people who are out there protesting for democracy, for you know, um, all, all sorts of rights that we we would consider to be universal in the West, that maybe they genuinely want those rights because those rights are actually the best thing for people, and that Eurasianists would be unable to understand that at all. Yes, I think in terms of Hong Kong, they definitely, uh, Russia definitely agreed with uh, China's assertion that this was a, a color revolution. Essentially, color revolution now becoming a term where, where it basically means a sort of Western-driven plot to uh, sort of replace, to install uh, Western values on a uh, on an otherwise unwilling local population. So yes, their 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 agreement, if not use of the term color revolution, generally sort of denotes that this sort of thinking, and. Um, Yes, it does blinker. It does uh, blinker Eurasianist analysis 
when you sort of look at, oh, people should have this culture, but now they're adop- adopting some other value. Uh, this obviously has to be um, a nefarious plot. One of the key problems with Eurasianism is that they sort of underestimate the material, the strength of just um, material values. So so, so people, uh, yeah. the, the desire to have a good life, essentially. So this this also, not, not only does this mean that, okay, they can't accept that um, sort of people want a better quality of life, and so they look to the West for that because the West has a, has the better economy, I guess. But also, in a sense, they also sort of discount the need for Russia to build up its own material strength mm. and serves that sort of allure to other countries because they think that it can be overcome with uh, non-material um, incentives, as as we've said earlier, sort of non-material organization or we let a sort of superior organization or somewhat. And, and that has that sort of grand strategy trying to sort of find substitutes for material resources has sort of rarely worked in 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 the sort of scope of world history yeah that yeah that makes sense because obviously i mean well bill clinton perhaps one of the uh people most heavily associated with the idea of this neoliberal order famously said it, it's all about the economy stupid um and i mean there's also there is the fact that uh there was an, uh, an assumption in the west that when china began to economically liberalize it would automatically politically liberalize and that that hasn't been realized so perhaps there's an extent to which the the west is wrong too but i i, I just wanted to cover one thing that came to mind which is obviously we, we mentioned russia we mentioned china we've mentioned turkic people what, what is the eurasianist view on the the uyghurs in east turkestan and, and what's basically happening there obviously there's a current controversy around it um you you would think perhaps do do based on the fact that you would think these people being a, a Turkic group in Central Asia, there would be an argument, actually, they really belong to Central Asia, along with Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so do you, have Eurasianists made any comment on that? I don't think they've specifically made any comment on the Uyghurs uh, in particular, but actually um, it depends because... As I said earlier, there are a lot of Eurasianist uh, ideologies, and some of them actually do include the entirety of Central Asia, right up to Tibet. So in some Eurasianist ideologies, Tibet, uh, Mongolia, the Uyghurs definitely would would have been part of the sort of the broader Eurasian civilization. But ultimately, the the Uyghurs were never, well, except for a very brief period, part of the Soviet space. So Mm. essentially, they're they're not... uh, they're not that much of an interest to uh, neo Eurasianists. the The main interest is between um uh, between uh, is the relationship with China, and that sort of uh, is uh, sort of a, another major problem with new uh, with neo Eurasianism and Eurasianism in general is that it sort of already assumes that Eurasia exists and it exists in a sort of a very spe- specific space, which is usually uh, equated to one of the Russian empires. Well, Russian or Soviet empires. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult to sort of um, argue with some with an Eurasian because uh, with a Eurasianist because basically they've already assumed it exists and they sort of justifying why why it has to exist and why the sort of the policy it has to undertake is about the same as as Russian policy nowadays. Yeah. So kind of yeah. Basically, that's sort of the issue. The same way that obviously there's a big debate over are universal Western values universal. Perhaps the Eurasian equivalent to that is 
is this idea of a, a universal understanding of different civilizational blocks actually universal? Absolutely, yeah. One final thing which I, I find interesting, because somebody like me, at least, and maybe other people hear all of this, and they they imagine a scenario where Russia could could utilize all of the, these ideas to a more effective extent, because you look at, obviously, what they were able to achieve by, you know, they have really destabilized. And I realize, again, that Russia's policy is not equivalent to Eurasianism, but I, I'm sure there must be a part of them that, that's aware of this idea and incorporating at least elements insofar as they can benefit them. And, and you you think about uh, all the different situations going on, and you think it almost feels like Russia are actually being overly cautious uh, in that, you know, they they are in a situation where you feel like they could be working even harder to project their influence, given that, especially during the period where Donald Trump was around, there was very little chance of Russia, of, uh, the USA sanctioning Russia and things like that, because obviously um, Donald Trump was quite sympathetic to Russia. And, you know, there's there's a lot of chaos in the world. And it, it kind of seems like Russia is actually being more passive than you would even think they would, given their, their situation and their ability to exert influence on places like um, Syria and, well, uh, Eastern Europe. To to what extent do you think they are holding back or do you not agree that they're really in such a good situation to expand their power more so than they already have? Well, I will say that Russian foreign policy is, of course, going to be limited by Russian domestic policy. And we, we, we would never know what the sort of we would never fully know what the constraints on um, Putin's freedom of action are. I mean, not just in the sense that you can order people around, but how likely um, sort of how, how that would affect his power base amongst the sort of the inner circle, his inner circle. Uh, there's also the idea that, um, you know, this is reality. You don't get a restart. So everything has to be done really conservatively because mm. one wrong step and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble as um, as many a nation has found out to their cost. We also, we, we can also say that Russian influence, even if they've sort of actually even helped a lot of, uh, uh, been of a great benefit to propping up a lot of these um, uh, national leaders, Russian influence is limited to an extent. You can't, no matter how indebt, indebted they are to you, you can't get people to do something they will not, they think will be absolutely in their the worst decision they can make. So we can think about this in the sort of example of Belarus, uh, where, where, you know, Despite all, but despite the sort of the clear sort of problems Russia has with uh, Alexander Lukashenko, it's still it's still finding it really tough to get rid of him. Despite all the influence, mm, it has, it's yeah. arguably the state that is closest to Russia, and it's it has it has sort of it has to go through like um it has to deploy a bunch of incentives, uh, change the uh, urge change of the constitution, and I think. Recently, he they they had to get uh, Sergey Lavrov over there to sort of scold Lukashenko, and they to to try and get him get him uh, get him to step down and sort of and sort of be able to manage the Belarusian transition. Uh, also, with Armenia, you can see that it's been very Russia has found it quite difficult to sort of even manage manage a country as sort of considered reliably Russian as Armenia. They've mm. gotten uh, a sort of uh, two years ago they got a pro-Western. Um, uh, uh, PM uh, elected in Russia and sort of uh, and I think Russia the the sort of performance behavior of Russia during the recent war can be seen as a sort of a yeah a, a sort of a response to that 
allied management is not is not very easy and especially if you have to be very careful with with what you're doing to avoid uh trouble so uh i think russia's sort of caution is entirely justified i mean ultimately ultimately in the grandest scheme of things the biggest problem russia will face are two are two things firstly they have to find a way to manage the uh the succession which i don't think they've done so far yet yeah even though there was a rumor of a of a health scare by putin uh earlier a couple months ago and the second thing they have to deal with they have to find a way to sort of uh deal with their economy i mean there's only so much you can do with 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 a limited amount of resources and no matter how good you are you the the chance that you'll get outplayed or just overwhelmed by uh by by let's just say in in general the west or alternatively by china is 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 quite high so they have to do those two things and these sort of diplomatic gains over over a couple of years, they're quite useful, but without sort of broader uh, a broader sort of reorganization of their internal and economic structures, I think they're uh, these are only going to be very temporary gains. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, thank you, thank you. I, I think that's actually yeah, that's a very good conclusion. So uh, well done, uh, and that All was right, that was really interesting. Uh, thank you for talking to us. And again, do you want to shout out your channel again? All right, so so my channel's in YouTube. It's strategy, uh, strategy stuff, strategy stuff. <laughs> thank you for joining us, and really interesting. Thank you. All right, thank you. And there it is. We are now pretty much at the end of the show, and I have to say that I thought it was very interesting uh, to talk to somebody who who knows so much about this this topic. Obviously, somebody who is, is clearly an expert on this and is an expert on so many other topics. And it's very likely you can expect to see Colin from Strategy Stuff back on the show at some point going forward. We even, after the interview was over, threw around some ideas of, of things we might want to discuss at some point. But obviously there needs to be a break from these kind of things as there indeed will be a break uh, next week where we won't be having any interviews at all however, or, or talking about politics at all. But rest assured, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Colin is welcome back on the show whenever to discuss any of the numerous issues he, he does really know a lot about. And I, I'm sure that you found this issue and what he was discussing today uh, as interesting as I did. And I'd like to challenge you to think about what other theories there are that, that might underpin the actions of uh, international actors. Obviously, right now in the UK, we have disagreements between the UK and the EU over Brexit. What theories are underpinning that? There, there is always theories to understand things, and there's always ways that you can explain people's actions. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And it's that's one reason why I find these overarching explanations so interesting, this idea that there might be a sense of a Eurasian civilization, a Eurasian identity, and that perhaps crafting that Eurasian identity through these international actions might be something we can expect from countries like Kazakhstan and Russia, uh, and other countries are going to act in accordance with that, whether that's Turkey or the United States or the EU or North Korea. The point is, if you don't want to be surprised by what international actors do, if you don't want to be shocked when these kind of things happen, your best bet is to look into these theories which attempt to explain and predict what will be done by these countries. So until we're back in the new year, talking with more people, talking to more experts about more interesting topics, looking into other theories and other explanations for the world as it is, uh, I would like to wish a big thank you for every single person who has been uh, an interviewee on the show so far. I would like to hope that we'd all come and listen on New Year's Eve, where it's going to be a bit more casual, a bit more relaxed, and that you would enjoy that, uh, that you enjoyed the show today, and that you would be with us for the whole of the new year if indeed that is how long I'm doing this for, because, you know, I, I really enjoy it. 
And I'm sure that there are enough interesting people, uh, enough experts on all sorts of different topics that I can be doing these interviews indefinitely. And that's absolutely fine by me. I hope you all have, again, a very merry Christmas Eve, a fantastic Christmas Day, a wonderful New Year, and that this show has maybe introduced some new ideas to you, as I hope it will continue to going forward. All the best, Merry Christmas, and God bless. And as always, I am Michael Brown, this is The Eclectic Vanguard, and this is Radiolab 97.1 FM.